The recent high-profile cyber attacks on Optus and Medibank have forced boards and executive teams to scramble to understand the risks relevant to them. In a world where cyber risk is becoming more and more prevalent, it is now more important than ever that boards and executive teams have the appropriate cyber literacy in order to understand and manage the cyber risk relevant to them. Claire Pales and Anna Liable are both directors of a business called The Secure Board, which specialises in enhancing the cyber security awareness of boards and executive teams and helping with their cyber literacy. In this episode of Crisis Talks, we'll cover off on what boards and executive teams should be doing around data privacy and governance, cyber risk management, ransom decision processes, and how they should prepare for that worst case crisis response. Anna Liable and Claire Pales, welcome along to Crisis Talks. Now, Anna and Claire, welcome along to Crisis Talks. Thanks so much, Grant. Thanks, Grant. Now, Anna, please tell me a bit about the Secure Board and the important work that you guys are doing. I'll take a step backwards to talk to you about where Claire and I met. So we actually met about 15 years ago, but we do so have been saying 15 years for about five years. Um, when we we're both working together at Telstra and we actually met at a networking event. So even though we've never worked together before, we've stayed in touch over the years and uh, really came back together in late 2020 to write our book called The Secure Board. And at the time, I suppose for Australia, cyber was still seen as an IT issue. We wrote our book to really help directors gain confidence in governing cyber risk. And we published the book in March 2021. Um, and later that year, also launched our own podcast, In Pursuit of the Secure Board. And we work to help boards become more confident in overseeing cyber risk. So understanding the detail behind it, the role that the whole organisation plays, and really helping them understand how their director duties and obligations come to life around cyber, as that can become quite daunting. We have sat in the key seats in terms of playing the, the role around cyber. So I've worked as the chief information officer. I also sit on boards and Claire's got the deep cyber expertise. What do you think is the biggest gap in that knowledge in the board sort of environment that we're seeing across Australia at the moment? I think firstly, it's this shift in the mindset around it being an IT issue. So it's understanding the consequences that a cyber event can have on an organisation. And unfortunately, it's taken the recent cyber events within Australia to actually help bring that to life for boards. What about that sort of literacy component there, Claire? So the cyber literacy, the IT literacy has been a real challenge. Well, you've got more tech-enabled businesses, you find that the senior management executives and board members have a greater understanding and awareness of how technology does enable, but also then the risks it presents. How is that sort of understanding improving or has it improved at the moment? Anna and I like to take the approach that helping directors to understand they actually know a lot about managing cyber risk already because they manage other risks in an organisation and they might manage the risk of flood or fire or other catastrophic events within their industry verticals. And so rather than telling directors that, you know, they've got this steep hill to climb. We really come at this from saying that 70% of managing cyber risk is the usual things that you would do to manage any other risk. And the 30%, we try to help them not be fearful of beginning to gain an understanding of that. It's a long journey because most directors are coming to the table with a long history of either finance or legal or operations. And so we don't expect them to know cyber overnight. But we do want to help them to understand that they've got some of the tools already, but they have to start somewhere in learning that the cybersecurity 
um, detail and content that they will need to manage cyber risk. And that doesn't happen overnight. And it certainly doesn't happen just by reading our book or just by listening to podcasts like this one. They have to make an effort to understand in the same way that as a cybersecurity professional, I have to make an effort to understand the finances if I want to join a board. It's exactly the same because you would never put a director on a board who doesn't understand how to manage the other risks in a business. So with cyber, we have to help directors to understand they've got some of the capability and skills already, but they do have to make an effort in this space because for many of them, it is quite new. How important is that connection between the security chief information function and the board in developing that awareness of the risks and understanding what they need to do from a governance perspective? The relationship between the security leader and the board is a very important one. The role holds so much accountability. Um, And we like to say it's probably similar to the amount of accountability the chief financial officer holds in terms of managing the budget for the organisation and solvency. And so we really encourage boards to get to know their security leader. We understand that generally they're more technical in nature. I think it's really coming together to help understand the risk and discuss that so there is a deeper understanding in language that both the board and the security leader can understand. And it's also the role of the security leader and the CIO and the CEO to really help the board understand the different people in the organisation that also are responsible for helping control or manage cyber risk, for example, managing third parties. So if you think about onboarding new vendors, that's actually a policy that sits with the procurement team. Whoever is actually accountable for procurement, it's their job to make sure that new purchases and new vendors are going through the appropriate process. That's not something that IT, in particular the cyber leader, is accountable for. You could use a similar analogy with culture. To be fair though, Anna, I mean, the the procurement teams also don't have a deep understanding of cyber or IT risk. And uh, the challenge that they will often have is they may have an assessment that's performed or a compliance checklist that might be applied to those third parties when they're looking to engage them. How can board members be expected to go deeper than those types of assessments when onboarding? Yeah, the thing that I'm most passionate about is accountabilities because I completely agree with you. It's not up to the procurement team to have this deep understanding of cyber and understand how to assess vendors from a cyber perspective. That is actually the role of the broader IT team, so not just cyber. The role and the accountability of the executive accountable for procurement is to make sure that people are adhering to the process. And when they're not, there needs to be consequences. And what we often see play out, whether it's procurement or data or the culture piece, is that we keep looking to IT. And this actually needs much broader engagement and ownership across the organisation to make sure that we can keep an organisation safe. Yeah, we often talk about multiple layers of defence or multiple layers of prevention, integration with preparation and preparedness activities and integration of your governance and assurance and risk management sort of frameworks. Claire, have you seen that that's being applied and is there some significant improvements that we're seeing required in this space, particularly on on how that integrates from the, the technical assurance and the technical risk side? I still think there's some good work being done, but quite isolated. So organisations are certainly coming forward with a BCP or business continuity plan or a crisis management plan and crisis management teams and, you know, thinking crisis level, you know, as I said earlier, around maybe things like floods and fires or um, particular things that happen in their industry. And then over here, we've got the IT team and the security team building out 
IT incident response plans or cyber incident response plans. But that integration between something that's happening in the technical world of the business and something that's happening in the physical world of the business, I think is still lacking. And we don't necessarily see those groups join up on a regular basis. And from a preparedness perspective, we'd like to see the incident response plan get practiced, but be practiced by the security team and then practiced by the security team with the IT team and then practiced at the executive level and then practiced at the board level and you know, multiple opportunities to practice those plans where they have to intersect. So a security incident that happens on one laptop, you might just manage within the security team and a couple of IT helpers, but something that happens where the whole organisation is impacted gets to a crisis level where the security leader and the tech leader and probably multiple other members of the organisation are all getting in a war room together. You don't want to do that for the first time when there's a huge scale incident where you're shutting down sections of your network. So if you can have those documents reference each other and then in practice have those documents and those people coming together as a practice exercise, when you do get to the crisis activity, you know, the real-time 2am panicked phone call, the people around the table all know who each other are and what needs to be done. And I still think that there's a gap between that utopia and what's actually playing out in organisations now. And part of the challenge of that is that we put documents in place because an audit tells us to, or a regulator tells us to, or a board tells us to, but we're not necessarily leveraging those documents and practising them in the same way that an organisation would be expected to practise a fire drill, for example. Yeah, that's really our bread and butter. And we're seeing that connection between, you know, the major incident management component for IT connecting into the crisis response team as being a real challenge point because on one hand, there's a tech bridge that's often developed and activated as part of a, an initial activation in a technical response. Um, that tech bridge connection to crisis response or organisational response is where the gap starts to flow from there. And have you seen some ways that organisations have improved that connection aside from exercising and practising and, and testing? Is there some other ways that you're seeing that they've been better at connecting that IT incident management with the crisis management response? I definitely think there's nothing like a simulation or an actual event to actually bring that to life. I think you can talk about it as often as you like, but it's often not really understood until you're in the situation itself. I suppose part of our role in the work that we do with boards is more from a coaching approach. So it's also really talking to boards about not expecting the CIO and the IT team to be available for the broader crisis management piece. Often there's an assumption that they'll be in the room helping make the business decisions and even playing a really significant leadership role in the crisis itself. Whereas I think we all need to work from the basis that the IT team will be extremely busy just doing the things that they need to do within, I suppose, you know, continuing to monitor the event, isolate the event, dealing with third parties that they need to, trying to feed updates and communications um, through to the executive team and then through to the board as well. So I think it's protecting the IT team as much as you can to make sure that they can focus on the work that they need to do while the broader organisation comes into play. Claire, Really sheltering that IT team in the response becomes a really challenging job of the crisis team. How have you seen that work? Um, I think there's a couple of components to it. One is making sure that there's a constant conversation if you're in the middle of a crisis to make sure that people aren't burning out, to make sure that they know that they're not just working in a back room somewhere and that the board are actually there for moral support 
And, you know, sometimes the board don't need to make lots of decisions during a crisis, but they have to be present. And the people who are operational and are frontline want to feel that someone's got their back and that that what they're doing, you know, 24-7 for a few days or weeks or months sometimes is recognised that that they're making the effort. So having a leader that helps them make sure that they're getting fed and watered and they're getting breaks, but also, you know, get back to the, the conversation around preparation, knowing that you can change people out at times and you're still going to get a quality outcome. And, you know, both Anna and I have been part of simulations before where you take someone out of the room and all of a sudden the bottom falls out of things because that person is the key decision maker well, they might be on leave or they might have COVID or they might be managing another incident. And Anna and I have talked about this with clients before that sometimes there are multiple incidents or crises going on in an organisation at once. You might be having a cyber incident, but you might be having another incident at the same time. It's not always the case that the same people can just keep going and going and going. You need to be able to test whether or not you've got redundancy and resilience with those key players. That that key person risk is something that you can definitely test in in um, scenarios as well. And to come back to your question that you asked of Anna before around, you know, how are people doing things better? One of the opportunities that Anna and I have to talk to boards is to ask them about whether or not they've made decisions or, or thought through some of these things before around cybersecurity risk. So not a scenario as such, but just putting questions to them around, you know, how long could you operate on pen and paper? Sometimes the directors look at us like, well, pen and paper, would we really get back to that? But yes, some organisations do. And, you know, we've worked with manufacturing companies before who have realised that very quickly, while their factories might still be able to operate and they might be able to create their widgets, the logic they use to price things or to quote things would stop. And so while you can create product, you might not actually be able to service new or current customers. So, you know, we talk to CEOs and boards about thinking through those operational impacts not just the technical impact that sometimes you get focused on in a scenario, but that real life, you know, how would we continue to function question. And those thought-provoking activities are sometimes just as powerful as a, a grand scale, you know, scenario incident where you've got all of the moving parts. Yeah, business continuity planning has been a, a critical element of success for these responses. But what we're seeing is that there is a real dislocation between the IT incident response and the disaster recovery component as well then as the business continuity impact that might be felt in the organisation. Have you seen some good examples of how they've really tied together a bit more seamlessly and how they can you know, really ensure that they're integrating those in a better way? I think for many organisations, up until very recently, they maybe hadn't taken the time to have those conversations. Anna and I have spoken to a few boards in recent times who are looking at what's going on in the Australian landscape at the moment for cyber and wondering how they can relate to what's happening because I'm sure that the big companies we're seeing being breached are absolutely in crisis mode and are absolutely in business continuity mode and some of them have been fortunate enough to continue to operate while they're managing the crisis and others have had to grind to a halt and that's totally understandable depending on your risk position and what's happening for your business. And so this is very individual. And we get asked all the time, is there a template for this? Is there a template for that? There's no template because every organization has to think differently about how they would respond. 
some of the companies we deal with say, well, how do we learn from Optus when they're a big telecommunications provider and their data's here and they're doing this? Well, there are always lessons that you can learn how other organisations are managing these crises. So while we are not necessarily seeing people do this better, we're trying to help them ask themselves better questions and really see that you can learn from everything that goes on. Even if you're a small not-for-profit, you can learn from, for example, what happened to Colonial Pipeline through the decisions they made and what was made public and also through just talking to other not-for-profits, for, you know, to use this example, about how they're doing things differently. Because it's not this is not a commercially sensitive area when we talk about managing cyber risk. Everybody can learn from each other to get this done better for the kind of greater good as opposed to using it as a competitive advantage, which I know some businesses want to do, you know, to use their cyber controls and their cyber posture as a way of saying that they're better than their competitors. But in reality, I really think that we all need to do better in this space. And I I don't think Anna and I are seeing anybody, certainly at the moment, doing this better than others. I think lots of people are scrambling at the moment to start to put this puzzle together. My major concern at the moment, though, is given the government's response and how hard they came down, particularly on Optus at the start, how much do you think that's going to really perturb other businesses from being more open about these types of incidents in the future? And how much are we going to see them really close up shop, uh, particularly from the root cause analysis side of the fence, Anna? I think that we're going to see consequences of how Optus has played out in particular, both from a positive side and and a negative side. I think if I look at some of the positives, it's provided clarity for organisations around who will be facing the media, the messaging of the media, that how they prioritise who they're communicating with. Um, I mean, Optus um, was criticised because they announced the attack in the media, basically before they contacted their customers. And from a more negative side, I think that the the personal attack on the CEO of Optus is going to make it quite daunting in the future for senior leaders to be more transparent about these, regardless of if you've got mandatory reporting. And I also think I've been reflecting on the fact that we've now got the amendments to the Critical Infrastructure Act in place, and Optus is well and truly in scope for that. But I think the government could have played a different role in basically role modelling their position under that Socky Act. I think their positioning on the second attack has been a lot more considered uh, Claire, do you think that's part of the lessons that Claire O'Neill might have learned from that first response? I mean, she called out the attack earlier as being an unsophisticated attack. And I think that really did challenge Optus at the time around what they were doing in their response. Do you think that we're seeing a more measured response from the government in these second instances that we're dealing with now? I certainly think that throughout October, we saw a change in the, the tone and the language as more and more organisations came out and talked about the breaches they were experiencing at the time, or even those companies that came out and said, actually, we were breached a little while ago, and now we think we better tell you about it. I think there was a great sense of panic at first, but over the months and also since, we've definitely seen a more measured approach. I just think it's been a real challenge as well, because lots of organisations and people on platforms such as LinkedIn have come out and attacked the government for their response. They've attacked these organisations. And the security leaders who are working around the clock trying to remediate and resolve some of these vulnerabilities and and make sure they don't get hit again. And I just worry that it's very easy to sit back and look at how the government responded and how organisations have responded and point fingers and say, well, they could have not said that or they could have been a bit better in that case. But until you're in the throes of that crisis, it's very difficult to know how you would have responded. And 
you know, I totally agree with Anna saying that now businesses in Australia, I think, will become very much more curated and very careful about how they respond, in what order, to who and and who they have in the room when they're trying to make decisions. Because when you think about whether or not you pay the ransom, as a good example, the ones we've seen in, in the recent month or so are absolutely setting precedents for the future. And so there's heavy involvement with the government, the Cybersecurity Centre, the Australian Federal Police. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's in the room. But at the end of the day, it has to work with that organisation's moral and ethical position as well. So there's a lot of moving parts. And I don't know how others in the industry and those outside the security industry, how they feel it's appropriate to have been quite attacking in in this case, because everybody's experiencing this in many ways for the first time. You know, we're very much a a decade behind some of our peers in in the globe and, and across in other countries. We haven't necessarily seen it to this scale before, but this isn't the end. You know, this is the way probably of the future. So I think we have to be careful about how we comment on how others have done things because we never know if we're going to be the next one who is on the front page of the paper. Yeah, I think Thomas Knudsen said, uh, who was the managing director of Toll when they were hit with their cyber attacks and now the chairman said it's not a matter of if but when. Uh, We've seen also a lot of commentary from the Attorney General Mark Dreyfus talking about how data should be treated as a liability rather than an asset. And when we talked about the financial officer responsibilities and how it equates to a CIO responsibilities, are you seeing data being represented on a balance sheet anywhere? Is there a depreciation schedule that you're seeing on a balance sheet as part of the governance structure, Anna? Or is that that something that's going to follow? Grant, from a finance perspective, some companies are still trying to work out the cloud needs to be OPEX now, not CAPEX. So I think we're a, I think we're a while, while away from seeing data on a balance sheet. I actually think um, with data, it's a risk-based decision. The value of data um, from an asset perspective is really around the insights that it can give you. You can make better decisions, uh, but it is also, I suppose, a large contributor to risk. And I think that the recent breaches have really highlighted that, the information that people are actually capturing, how long we're holding it for. So I do think it's a fine balance. And I think it goes back to the risk appetite of the organisation. Is there more value in retaining the data and getting the insights from it versus not capturing all of it to start with and managing that from a cybersecurity type risk perspective? It's sort of one of those risk-based sort of points, like you said, the less data you hold, the less you can be held to ransom. So, Claire, is that that people are looking more objectively now at their data and looking at ways that they can reduce the risk from a just a pure holdings perspective? Or are they looking at the catalogue and going, okay, let's perform a harm assessment on this now up front so if we do get hit, we can expedite our response? What we're seeing definitely is organisations trying to get their head around what data they hold and why they hold that data, but also where is that data? Because part of the issues we have with cybersecurity incidents is that the data is sitting in a place potentially where it shouldn't be or it's in a place where it's at risk. So businesses knowing what data they've got, why they've got it, what data needs protecting, so classifying that data to say, well, that's sensitive or that's confidential or whatever the case is, and then making sure that people who are, have access to that data are treating it appropriately in relation to those classifications. There's lots of businesses who are at the very, very start of that journey and don't necessarily know what data they've got, where it is, or why they've even collected it. 
We definitely see organisations who are collecting too much data and are recognising that they've collected that data because it's good for mining that data and understanding more insights about their customers because from a revenue perspective, it can help them create new products. But Anna and I are also experiencing customers who are treating some people's data, VIPs, for example, in a different way to how they're treating other customer data and not recognising necessarily that just because somebody might be of significance in the community doesn't mean their data is of any more or less value than somebody else who's just a person on the street. So, you know, that they've had rules in place previously for the protection of particular information assets that maybe they start, they need to start to look at applying that across all of their information. The opportunity now is for organisations to think through what data they've got, how they segment that data, so where it sits. And the umbrella across all of this is who has access to it, why do they have access to it, and how do they have access to it. You know, access control is something that is the, the, the key, I guess, to protecting information and making sure that the right people have access to, to that information. There's a lot to take in when it comes to our data assets and what we need to protect and what mechanisms we use to protect it. Let's take ourselves into a bit of a war room now. And in a response, what sort of things need to be triggered and what scale do you need to bring very quickly into these situations? And, and what sort of things do you need to consider as part of a response to a cyber attack? Grant, I'll focus on some of the things that I think businesses are just starting to become aware of. And it's the things that sit outside the normal response plans and the things that you learn when you're actually running these simulations. Um, and I'll actually use an example of a simulation that I was part of a number of years ago. The scenario that played out for us was within financial services, hackers had got access to customers' funds. So we were responding to that and we had one person within our response team accountable for communications. And that was communications across well, with all employees, all customers, regulators, the media. And then we actually had the hackers play out that they were on Twitter, which then led to more customer communications back into the financial services organization, concerned that they were losing their money. And what we found through that scenario was that we actually needed three to four communications people, all very focused on different stakeholder groups, but needing for the, the messaging to be consistent. Um, some of the other things that we need to think about is our mandatory reporting requirements. We also need to have had a conversation with the board, and the board needs to consider this as well, is what role does the board want to play in decision-making during a crisis? For some boards, they might feel comfortable with the CEO making the decisions and the board is kept informed. And then if I was a director, I'd want to know how often I'd be getting updates and how would I be getting them? Will they be in writing? Will we be having a meeting? And then some boards would actually prefer that they were involved in the decision-making. So management might make a recommendation to them and the board would want to come together and think that through. And I think the decision to make a ransom payment or not is something that is a good example of where the board would probably want to play a role in that. What are some of the key considerations in that ransom payment decision, Claire? There's a number. I think there are, as I mentioned earlier, there's moral and ethical concerns. And you know, I often use the example of a religious-based hospital. So as a religious organisation, as a board, you might say that ethically we wouldn't pay money to a ransom demander. But if paying that ransom or not had an impact on the livelihood of people in the hospital that you run, then that plays into your decision as well, because it may mean that you can get your systems back up and running faster 
and therefore the risk to life would be minimised. Having said that, we know that these situations don't happen overnight. You might receive a ransom demand, but you might be negotiating with them for days and then getting the payment made in Bitcoin or crypto or however you're going to pay it and then actually getting the keys for decryption. We have seen examples of organisations who actually get back up on their feet themselves before they even get the decryption keys. So when we take into account whether or not we pay the ransom, there's moral and ethical concerns, but there's also operational and resilience factors to take into consideration where you think, well, actually, we've got the backups, we've got the means to get our organisation going again. But I also think that if we think to some of the organisations that have been hit over the last 12 months or so, the systems that they found had to be shut down might have been systems that helped to run their business. They could have been quality assurance software. They could have been operational technologies in, a, in an energy company or, or when we saw with Colonial Pipeline. Switching those systems back on when you're not 100% sure if the bad guys are out of your network, that has some part to play as well. So I think ransom decisions come down to many, many facets and they are individual to organisations. I think there's certainly a decision path that businesses need to go down. And Anna and I advocate every day of the week for having these conversations well before you're ever in a situation where you have to make that balanced decision. Just coming back to the answer earlier that Anna gave as well around some of the preparations you might make in the war room and the people you might have in there, thinking through when to put that war room together, I think is very important as well. And it's very challenging for businesses to think, are we seeing those blinking lights on a dashboard for a reason? is very different to receiving a ransom demand and knowing that very immediately you're in the face of a crisis. There could be a long lead up to actually knowing whether or not you're having a cyber incident or you're part of an attack. Getting that war room into the right place at the right time, there's a lead up, I suppose, to knowing whether or not there's actually a crisis at hand and do you want to get those people out of bed in the middle of the night as opposed to, well, we got a ransom demand, so yes, there's no question about whether or not we're in the face of it. We've seen a few boiling frog moments for clients in recent times where it's emerged over time. There've actually been own goal IT system outages. How difficult is it for organisations to really discern the difference in those early stages, whether you've got your own issues that you have to respond to or it is an actual cyber attack? Part of the concern around, you know, own goal IT incidents often comes down to your monitoring and whether or not you've been looking at your network and your visibility of what's going on, but also your benchmarks. So knowing what normal looks like in your organisation from a technology perspective will help you to understand when there are anomalies or when there are people in networks or systems that that shouldn't normally be there. Only organisations who are monitoring for that access control, that um, baseline traffic, those types of alerts that might go off, understanding which ones of those need to be investigated and which ones don't. It really involves having people in your organisation who understand what your network looks like on any given day. And, you know, it comes back again to the point earlier around there's no template for this. Every business is different. Every business has a different view of this. It might be very normal for you to have people online in other countries at odd times of the day. And so when that doesn't happen, you think, oh, this might look a bit strange. For businesses who are Australian-based and only ever have people in a Melbourne office all the time, you might start to get concerned around access that happens in the middle of the night and might be coming through from IP addresses in other countries, for example. So knowing what your network is supposed to look like on a given day and knowing what anomalies to investigate 
requires logging and monitoring and people either inside your organization or trusted third partners to be looking over your network all the time and knowing what normal looks like and what maybe an anomaly might need investigating. Claire's example really highlights our reliance on people. So I think the IP that we build up in our key resources, um, and it's about our systems, it's about our processes, it's about our people, it's the relationships. And for me, particularly because the IT market's been quite hot over the past few years, it's really thinking through when we consider retention strategies, the possible risks of losing some of our key people and that IP that Claire talked about, what does normal look like to us? The triggering component's the most challenging part, of just, as you said, and it's pretty clear if you've got a direct threat actor that's throwing a ransom your way. But when you've got these different issues that can happen, how important is it to get that team together quickly in order to look at the simultaneity of issues that you're starting to deal with? Well, first of all, I always joke that you never have a cyber event or an IT incident during the week. It's always on, it's always on weekends or, or at nighttime outside business hours. Um, I've been really fortunate to work with a very strong leadership team where we always took or made the decision that we'd prefer to be called and woken up, even if we weren't needed, particularly because of the industry that I was working in, which was financial services. It's heavily regulated. It's ext- extremely important to customers and the community. We would pull a core team together and they would represent all of the functions or domains, if you like, within IT. And we found that the diversity of thought that came together from different work experiences, uh, different areas of expertise and different skills really helped us understand the threats um, and the likelihood of what an incident was actually going to be, whether it was a normal IT outage, which um, unfortunately do become quite normal or something more suspect. You spoke about bench capacity before and the importance of having those backups for the extended duration. How long do you think organisations should be planning for a team to be in place as a minimum in general to deal with these situations? We, we sort of use the, the timeframes around about that eight to 10 days now. It seems to be an indicative timeframe. Are you seeing anything more specific in the clients that you've been dealing with? One of the things that I did as the pandemic started and all of our workers went to remote working was I actually built out a structure of four different incident response teams. And as I mentioned earlier, I made sure that I had representation from all of the IT domains. And that was really important to me as we'd been an organisation that had all worked in the same building. And so if we'd had an incident in the past, I could walk around on the floor and ask people to come into the war room. And I was very mindful that uh, working from home meant that I wouldn't be able to do that. But also we could have several incidents running concurrently. And we may also have incidents that run longer term. And we did touch on it earlier, which I didn't mention, is that boards are also accountable for the health and safety of our people. And expecting people to work for lengthy periods without breaks during a crisis is just um, creating more risk to the business and liability for the business as well. And so for me, I think we have to expect that the first few weeks, possibly into the months, are going to be very, very full on and quite chaotic. And so I think it's allowing for that. But what we're also seeing now is that the mop-up can go on for months, sometimes up to a year. And often that's things that take boards and executives by surprise. Yeah, that recovery tail is often at least about an 18-month minimum for any type of incident we're seeing, let alone an IT incident. Claire, are you seeing the similar sort of issues with some of the clients you work with? Yeah, another 
approach that uh, one of our clients has taken was to be really clear about the skills and capabilities that they do have in the organisation to triage an event like this. And so having a third-party cybersecurity forensics company on retainer so that if they got to the point where they thought, okay, we've spent half a day on this, we can't be 100% sure, let's just pull down some of these retainer hours, get these third-party forensics or cyber specialists in, give them the brief, get them to have a poke around in the network while the team goes back to doing what they're supposed to be doing and running the technology side of the business. Using a third party to lean on can be a very valuable resource, especially in much smaller organisations where there are company stakeholders who wear multiple hats. So if people find they don't have the skills and capabilities just be upfront and honest about it and have someone on retainer or have a trusted third party that you know you can call and get them to have that around-the-clock support for you while you're trying to work out what the crisis actually is rather than taking your very high-value people who are usually there running the organisation over on this triage. There's a balance, obviously, but sometimes you need to be reflective of the fact that we might need to pay for additional resources to do the deep forensic investigation rather than our staff who might not be 100% skilled to do that. Just having that self-awareness of the skills and capabilities that your business has is incredibly important when it comes to this. I think either way it provides another layer of assurance for the board because it's not your own people then that you can go out to a wider market and say, look, we've, we've engaged the best experts here. We've engaged the third party to look at this from a different perspective. I think that gives a lot more confidence as well. It's not just you who's already breached some trust in the fact that you've had an incident in some way or form. That third-party assurance is a strong signal to your customers, clients, and other affected parties that you've got the right sort of team together to deal with this incident. Is there a real separation that needs to occur then between the board oversight and the considerations for the long-term versus what they're dealing with in that immediate you know, first few days, first few hours, et cetera? And, and how can we make sure that the board is not just reacting, but considering that longer-term impact on the organisation and the effect it might create? The conversation around that should start months and months, if not years, before an event. And I think that's really when the board has a discussion around risk appetite when it comes to cyber And risk appetite, I think, can often, for cyber in particular, can often be focused on whether it's the ransom demand or the cost of an event, but thinking more broadly around the impact to the reputation of the organisation, the solvency, so the financial implication to the business, and feeding that into the risk appetite for cyber. And I think then the board will have more clarity on the role that they'll play during an incident and really being comfortable around how that will be managed and some of the key decisions that they may need to make. And then more broadly, I think that there's less likely to be a level of surprise around losing customers or large contracts. Sometimes you'll lose staff. And I do think that damage to the brand and that might um, have an impact on share price, for example. Uh, You may be getting fines from your regulators. So really making sure that the board is prepared for what comes after the event as much as the event itself. Yeah, it's a it's a really challenging environment to navigate that pre, during, and then the post. Is there one piece of advice you'd give to an organisation uh, off the back of this conversation that you would say, if you just zero in on this key element here, it's going to really set you up? 
the one thing that Anna and I talk about the most to clients in our books, in our podcasts, in everything we do is the value of preparation. Small bits of preparation all the time. Conversations with your CISO, building trust, not meeting your security leader on the day of the crisis, but actually having a relationship with them far before that, using their knowledge to understand more about what would happen in your organisation if a crisis were to unfold, going to simulations, not seeing them as a waste of time. Simulations are never a waste of time and we, we want them to go badly so we learn the most out of those simulations as possible. Thinking through scenarios like, okay, what happens if we turn off the finance system? What happens if our payroll operator has a cyber incident? How do we pay people? What happens if there is a cyber incident that causes a piece of machinery to harm somebody? You know, thinking through all of the possible things that might happen in your organisation long before they actually happen, that is never wasted time by a board, by an executive, by an organisation. Front-ending that preparation, having decision frameworks that say, okay, what if the ransom was only half a million dollars or what if the ransom was 15 million? Would our decision change? Who can make those decisions? Does the CIO make those decisions in the middle of the night about switching off the entire network or does the chair have to come together with the board and make a decision like that? Thinking all of that through long before a crisis is upon you, that preparation part is is definitely where Anna and I are continuously focused in our education because once an incident starts, they're all very different, but the preparation side in a business, you know, the board and the executive can be thinking through that stuff early. And if there's one question that a board should be asking their CISO, I think it would be, what is keeping the CISO awake at night? Because, you know, it's a bit of a cliched question, what's keeping you awake at night? But the CISO, what's keeping them awake at night is probably the most concerning risk in the organisation. They're the ones that really should know where the bodies are buried or where the gaps are. So if the board really wants to know where they're, they're at risk, probably asking their CISO what's keeping them awake at night would be a really good place to start. I would ask every board and every CEO to put themselves in the shoes of the CEO on board at Optus and Medibank. And I think that we have to all reflect on how prepared we feel to face into a similar crisis because everything that Claire has shared is spot on. However, we still have this mindset that it's never going to happen to us. And I think that of recent times, we've actually seen that it is more likely that it will. And I think to get the priority and I suppose the preparedness that we need, I think people need to put themselves in the shoes of other organisations to really help build a sense of urgency around being more prepared. There's a real cognitive dissonance that occurs where people go, okay, well, it's not really me. That's not us. We're not a telecommunications company or we're not a, uh, a medical insurance company. Those sort of things mean that it's not going to really be the same context, but contextualising the impact is the crucial part because that helps then inform your preparedness, as you said, and whatever you can do to stay left of the boom of these situations is always the key, without any pun intended, of course. Now, <laughs> now I always ask every guest when they come on, so be prepared, please, for this next question. But if you had a chance to sit down with someone from history, from now, whomever it may be in your time or in your industry or otherwise, to talk about a crisis that they've been through, who would it be and why? Claire? It wouldn't be somebody famous. It would be having conversations with people within my network who are trusted and who would share with me warts and all what they've been through under Chatham House rules and really getting to the bottom of what it's really like to be part of a crisis. And I 
have been through crisis myself, but also sat down with people who have been part of some of the bigger crisis that we've seen in Australia play out in the last few years. And what you don't see in the media is the emotions, the blood, sweat and tears, the time that people put into it and the real long tail of what happens in these events. So I probably wouldn't choose someone famous or um, someone that you would expect. I'd, I'd probably choose someone even outside of cybersecurity but who was part of a cyber crisis that they were the ones that were holding the whole thing together with Band-Aids and chewing gum while the business tried to continue to operate and really hear about the guts of what happened so that I could understand more learnings from it than just what we're seeing in the press. I, I think that to me would would help with my curiosity about what really happens in the inside the, some of these war rooms. I love that, Claire. Um, I would love to have either lunch or dinner with Ukraine's first lady, Alina. And I would love to hear about or learn about her resilience and her approach to resilience because I wonder how I'd sleep at night if I had my partner, my life partner, putting his life on the line for his job and his country. And so I'd just love to know how she has remained so strong throughout the crisis that just keeps going on for months and months and the worry that she must carry, but the commitment to their country is stands over the top of all of that. I, just, I really admire them as a couple and I just love to have a time to talk with her. Yeah, that uniting purpose for any situation, any crisis is really inspiring in many times. It's probably the one key thing that you do see as an opportunity in crisis, as JFK would put it. So yeah, those sort of inspirational people and what they've lived through, their stories, resilience in the face of adversity is uh, is what I love to find out as well. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you both today. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast Crisis Talks and sharing some of your insights around boards and the challenges and the issues they face now in this world of cyber attacks and IT outages and other challenges that exist for them. So thank you, Anna, and thank you, Claire, for joining us today on Crisis Talks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Crisis Talks covering cyber risk, cyber governance, and how boards and executive teams can really work together to enhance their cyber crisis preparedness. Given the risks that have occurred recently and the high profile incidents that have occurred across Australia and abroad, it's really timely that boards and executive teams start really investigating and understanding the risks relevant to them in this space. We all know that cyber risks and IT risks are now business risks. And unfortunately, we're seeing the effects that these incidents have on organisations when they're struck down by them. Despite the uncertainty and challenges that we've had this year, it's amazing to see the resilience of people shining through and our ability to overcome adversity. So please take the time to enjoy this break with your families and loved ones. And here's to a wonderful and prosperous new year.